0: We are joined behind the beam, uh, frankly, long overdue by our good friend. We actually are good friends, not just saying good friends. Rabbi Mark Wilds, the founder, the director of MJE, the Manhattan Jewish Experience, lighting Manhattan and the tri-state area on fire with the love of all Jews, changing lives, doing great things. One of those good looking rabbis who still has his hair uh, flowing <laughs> and blonde, a <laughs> source of envy. You'll have to tell us the secret one of these days. Rabbi Wilds, thank you for joining us.
1: Um, my hair and I are very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we are excited to go behind the Vima and learn more about not only your life, but to talk about subject that's
0: really important. Um, we're honored. Rabbi Brody is the outreach rabbi at the Booker. On synagogue. We don't know how many uh, Orthodox shuls actually have in their budget or on their staff designated outreach rabbis uh who are concerned and care about and connect with and engage the entire community it's a great point of pride of our community and a lot of what he's done what we do is inspired by your work at mje bje BRJE, In- in-c- you know.
2: including the name we said including when we're picking out it when we're picking out a name we're like well, what should we call this outreach program so, we, you know, look look at the best, Manhattan well, Jewish experience.
0: Talk well, to us, how you got, how'd you you get involved in outreach? When, when you were well, growing uh, up, uh, did you see yourself before, there?
1: before I do that, just a legal matter to get out of the way. We will have our <laughs> attorneys calling you because of trademark issues. But I guess flattery is the best form, what, no, what is it? Imitation, best form of flattery. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Manhattan Jewish experience. And I want to just say something else, Rabbi Goldberg. This is such a zuchus in an honor and Rabbi Broyd to be here with both of you i consider you both friends and colleagues and i tremendously tremendously respect you both for the amazing amazing work you're doing um i have so much to say and um i just blanked you asked what what was your question
0: so let's start with this actually we're going to come back to how you got into outreach your brother became a mayor of politics you went into outreach you know your dad was uh, high profile uh, represented some, some famous people. There's a lot to talk to you about, but let's fast forward. Let's begin actually at the end with where we're at. You've mm-hmm. dedicated your life, not necessarily always on that trajectory, but you've dedicated your life right now and your family make great sacrifices. Most are nephish. You work hard because you care about the Jewish people. You're doing outreach. Are you moving the needle? Are you making a difference? Assimilation intermarriage rate skyrocketing. 70% yeah. of non-orthodox are intermarrying. They're leaving the faith assimilation record highs so with all the incredible work mje and countless other outreach organizations are doing are are we losing this this war this battle are we moving the needle are we making headway and and therefore should we re-examine the resources we have where they should
1: be directed what's the state of of outreach today Okay. So the answer is yes and no. It's a great question. Because if you just look objectively at the numbers, 71% of our Jewish brothers and sisters outside of the Orthodox community are intermarrying and has what dent has MGE made in that? Well, somewhat of a dent. We've got 377 couples who have met and married through MGE. But here's the way you need to look at it. And we got to look at our Jewish brothers and sisters from Chabad for a little inspiration. Because if you just look at the objective numbers, you're going to go out of business. Nobody can look at those numbers and be happy. But you turn on one Jew to Yiddishkeit, and I know this sounds very idealistic, but this is the Amis. You turn one Jew on to Yiddishkeit, and they choose to raise their children by sending them to Jewish day school and living a life of Torah and mitzvot. What you've done is you've changed the trajectory for the the future, for that family, and for tens and dozens of others to follow. We gotta look, they say you can, and analyze, you know, success of continuity, not by one, but by two generations. So right yeah. now, MG is 23 years old. We've got a lot of our students ha- having their children's bar bat mitzvahs. Now I just came back from Teaneck for Rabbi Shalom Baums, our good friend, Rabbi Baums, who was gone, I brought 30 MG ears. You know who hosted those 30 MG ears? the 11 MGE families who became bali tshuva moved to tianak and are living there now beautiful and guess what each one of them has two to five kids each they're all sending them to the jewish day schools and that's just going to continue to build and grow and build and grow so on one hand yeah the numbers i can't argue with the numbers but at the other on the other hand one jew and i don't know how anyone can can just say oh the numbers throw our arms up let's just make aliyah and forget about the 80% 80% of American Jews that are unaffiliated, or whatever the not crazy number is, when when you meet one of those Jews, and you see how a life of Torah and mitzvot is so inspirational not only to them, but to us too, how could you turn your back on that? Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I
0: definitely, um, your work is incredibly inspiring and effective, right? You, you just mentioned some metrics, and we see its success. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe felt when asked, you know, how many Jews need to live somewhere for him to send the shliach, his answer was one. If one of your children lived somewhere and needed help, would you not travel for that one child to bring them back? And, and you know, I'm reminded of that famous rabbinic story of the, of the jellyfish, the boy walking along the beach, and there's millions of jellyfish he's thrown in the ocean. The old cynical man says, you know, what are you doing? Don't you see how many there are? Do you really think it's making a difference? And he picks one up, throws it in the water, and says, it made a difference to that one. So you're right. It
1: makes a difference to that one. But I'll ask you again. And, and-, and if you don't mind, and the jellyfish's progeny children right. and grandchildren. Great.
0: So what's the cost? So again, I, I, agree with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate for a moment, right? The businessman in me says, what's yeah. the cost of capturing that one jellyfish and their progeny. So if we look at how much does MJE, how many do all the outreach organizations combined, what are the salaries? What are the costs? What are the resources going in and therefore essentially how much are we spending for that Jewish marriage, that Jewish Balchuva? For that Jewish continuity. And is that a conscious choice? If we knew that to take a Jew who's not connected and the investment to make them feel connected, and we'll talk in a moment about how we measure success. What is the definition of success? Is 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 the is the amount any amount? Would we say five million dollars, whatever it takes to, to bring one okay. Jew back? How do we how do we look at the finances of outreach?
1: I I wish I had a simple, clear, it's an excellent, excellent question. Um, We do spend a lot, it's a Herculean feat to take. It's not as though we're taking a Jew and transforming them. They have to make that decision themselves. They're invested with free will. But the amount of money that it costs to take somebody from a ostensibly secular Jewish existence or lack of Jewish um, tradition, education, and bring them into our community where they feel comfortable enough to live this kind of life and pass it on to the next generation, is very expensive. I don't have an exact number from you, but it's a lot of money. Is it any more money than we're spending on our own children? That's what I'll say. Mm-hmm. Because what do we spend per capita on each of our children? It's about four or 500,000 when you finish Jewish day school 10 years, a year in Eretz Yisrael, two years in Israel, NCSY Kollel. Now they're on a college campus and we got to mm-hmm. get the JLESC rabbi to pay attention to them. Okay, take all those numbers. We are not spending per unaffiliated or less affiliated Jews any more money than we would spend on our own children. And they are no different than our children. They are just as much of our brothers. great assistant. answer.
0: That is, a, that is a great answer. It is a great answer. So how do you define, and, I'm, and Rabbi Brody, I want you to join in on this also because you're also involved in outreach. I'll ask both of you and we'll see if you have the, have the same answer. But we'll start with you, Rabbi Watts. How do you define success in outreach? What is the successful
1: outcome? That's a great question. And I'm curious, Rabbi Brody's, uh, response, because I've I've struggled with this over the years. On one hand, I'm not satisfied with the Lubavitch definition, which is get a Jew to keep a mitzvah. You're good to go. And by the way, there's a lot of support in Kabbalah and Hasidus. If you learn Tanya, I understand why they say this. It's not a concession to a reality, to a difficult reality. They believe it metaphysically. You get a Jew to connect with the Kodesh Baruch Hu through performance of mitzvos. That's it that's not good enough for me on the other hand if you were to define your success only in terms of shemira shabbos kashras tefillin sitzis mezuzah you know i think it depends on the jew because there are some jews who i've met who could really be become talmud and they could be not only donning tefillin every day and davening three times a day but they could be a posik they could be a a um just an unbelievable learned Jew. And we Baruch Hashem had such successes in MGE. Then there are others who you meet and it just doesn't seem like they're ever going to become religious. I know that doesn't sound like a very nice thing. We never we never give up hope. But for that Jew, I want to keep them involved. I want to take intermarriage off the table. And, you know, in New York City, most young Jewish professionals date casually, deliberately, intentionally, Jews, non-Jews, it's not even an issue. We have to make it an issue. And by the way, you can make it an issue without without having to make them observe it. Okay, just if you create a social milieu around them of Jews and you demonstrate why perpetuating Judaism, even if it's not halachic Judaism, is important, we can get a whole generation to stop dating outside of the faith because people look at interdating as racist. What, we're better? That's the We've we we never made the point of why it's worth it to be Jewish. If a person doesn't believe it's worth it to be Jewish, then why do I have to marry Jewish to ensure that my children will be Jewish? There's right. only one way to ensure or to combat intermarriage, and that's to make a case for Judaism. And, and therefore, to answer your question, a success would depend on the Jew. For some people, nothing short of Torah mitzvos and becoming a Talmud Chacham, and for others, marrying Jewish. So, Rabbi Josh, what would you say?
2: Yeah, so I, it's funny. I, I definitely started over there, um, you know, when we first began, when when Rabbi Goldberg was still in the Kolel and, and we were making this transition into the outreach world, that was definitely the model, you know, working through Aish and whatever I'd learned, learned from them and NJOP and, and all these other local, uh, or, or call it North American outreach organizations. It was kind of find, find the, the Jew and, and, and then try and make them might make them uh, as orthodox or, or committed in, as you can. But I also realize that we're living in Boca Raton, which didn't have and doesn't have the same Jewish outreach infrastructure that you have in the Northeast, where there's so many, many uh, organizations that are working. And other than Chabad right now, this is pretty much, that's pretty much it in, in the local community. We don't have an Aish in our community. We don't have an Orsa Meach and we don't have NJOP. We don't have any of these things. Mm-hmm. But what we do have, we have a lot of great, great, tools and communities and figuring out a way maybe where we can create a campaign that activates those people to connect with the people that we're trying to connect them with. And maybe there's that synergy, something we were talking about before the show, Mm -hmm. where we can kind of leverage the great things that are taking place in our community and introduce those things to people and help them connect with things that are meaningful to them. So is it just a mitzvah? Maybe. Is it more? Maybe. It could be anything. But, but you know, they are called the one man or woman show, can't really do much more than be the intermediary between the people we're looking to attract. And we know where they are because Boca is 50% Jewish, half the community is Jewish, 100 and now probably 60,000 Jews, 110,000 unaffiliated. It's the numbers are crazy, but we don't have the outreach infrastructure, but we do have the Jewish infrastructure totally. Client, and, people, and, and, and,
1: and you know what, you have if you don't want me jumping in, you have the greatest asset and commodity. And that is, you have incredible, besides Rabbi Gobert, <laughs> you have incredible, you have incredible balabatim. I know tons yeah. of people who, and the greatest, Rabbi Riskin, my teacher said, you know, for the price of a chicken, you can save a Jew. It's the greatest truism in the world because you don't need a fancy schmancy outreach program with outreach professionals and all this stuff. What you need are Jewish families that invite others to their Shabbos table and care enough to make some room at the table.
0: Yeah and to, they care enough to respond to the to the unaffiliated Jew or the intimidated inhibited Jew who bagels them who says oi online at Publix to turn around and say hi this is my name what's your name and and to realize the number one reason people don't come is because they weren't invited you know you think if you invite them they're going to lash out at you about their feelings about Judaism or orthodoxy but they won't they'd love the invitation if they'd come but Rabbi Wilds, I want to go back to something that you said in terms of mm-hmm. one of the definitions of success or a bar is and I agree with you. Combating uh, intermarriage. What's the argument against intermarriage? You're in Manhattan. You're in the hub of it all. You're in like ground zero for this. And I don't even know. I, you know, I've struggled. I, I, I once begged Lord Lord Sachs, whose whole life in some ways was composing the argument. You know, his books and his talks and his speeches. He was he was extraordinary. But on the other hand, unless I don't know that he explicitly ever wrote or gave us the manual, gave us the talking points. That when you meet the young person college campus young professional which is your target and they say look i've fallen in love and the other per- i just had this conversation sunday with yeah. the mother of a girl who fell in love with a non-jewish boy and the mother says i'm devastated i'm broken but i'm not losing my daughter over it she knows i'm disappointed she knows i'm upset but it kind of is what it is at this point at least her kids will be jewish so you tell that young lady she met a man and he'd make an amazing husband he'd make a fantastic father she sees in him everything she's looking for You now have half an hour of her time, you have her ear. What's your argument for why it's important not to go through with this? For why it's critical to marry a Jew?
1: Well, I will tell you that um, it's a great question. Um, Very little way of, very unlikely to convince someone who's already in love. What we have to do is we have to get to people, that's why we focus in 20s and 30s, we have to get to people before they start dating to realize how valuable being Jewish is and therefore why it's worth perpetuating. That's the argument for marrying Jewish is that we want Jewish kids because we want more people living this kind of life. If you don't believe in that kind of lifestyle, I'm not sure what kind of argument you can make. The mm. only thing you can do is the following. I'll tell you a story. When my oldest son, who's Bli now 25, was born, and it was Lenox Hospital. I was looking through the glass plate there. Uh, all these cute little babies swaddled up, looked like the United Nations, I remember. And I was looking looking at my baby, and there's another guy around the same age as me looking at his kid. And he starts becoming visibly emotional until he just starts all out crying. And he was standing right next to me, and he starts repeating, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I can't believe you know, he saw my yarmulke, and I was like, what's the matter, you can't believe what? I can't believe my wife wants our baby to be christened. I said, what's going on? He says, I'm Jewish. My wife isn't. We made a deal. We said when we had a kid, we would met, we would raise him Jewish. We were just in the room together. And she became so emotional. And she, all she wants to do is baptize our son. And he literally was crying on my shoulder. You know, you don't hit a guy when he's down. Like, dude, what were you thinking? But I do share this story with people. Because even if you're not bought in, now to judaism and i've said this to people dating you do not know what you're going to feel when that first kid comes along and you start wondering or god forbid somebody dies in the family and all of a sudden you're saying kaddish and you're wondering why am i here what am i leaving this world is there any kind of jewish legacy i'm leaving and you realize right so that that resonates with some people it's an emotional argument But you never know, because right now I'm in love with this girl. But in 10 years, you might be in love with something else. And it's going to be too late if you don't marry Jewish or at least consider a a conversion, an Orthodox conversion. And but it's but I think we've lost the battle at that point with most of them. We have to get to people when they're younger. That's why most Kirov organizations focus on college, 20s, 30s, because we got to get to them before they start dating.
0: That, that's an interesting strategy. I hadn't thought about it in that way. You know, I, I, um, I have the privilege of learning with a previous guest of Behind the Bima, And uh, we were talking about Shavuos uh, coming up. And, uh, you know, we have rigorous, robust uh, conversations and debates, A prominent individual. And we were talking about the notion of identity, Jewish identity, and in a certain degree, the identity politics and this emphasis in our time and generation on identity, what defines your identity? Is it your attraction? Is it how you feel? Is it biology? It opens the door for us to have those conversations about what is Jewish identity and where does Jewish identity rank in the hierarchy? Because really what what Shavuos, what Matan Torah, what Torah is telling us to do, and and he shared with me that, you know, his interpretation of the binding of Isaac is that even in our competing identity as a parent and as a servant of God, in our hierarchy of identities, my identity as a loyal Jew or as a loyal to God, has to be the overarching supreme identity that supersedes even an identity as a parent that's the message of okay it's a a tough message a difficult one but basically we never want to sacrifice you know we don't want to rank or create the hierarchy or priorities of identities but maybe there's a there's a conversation opportunity there in a world that's focused on talking about identity what is your identity what determines your identity how do you define identity identity politics intersectionality of identity what is your Jewish identity where does that fit in where does it come from what does it mean to you where does it rank in conflicts are you willing to are you willing to walk away from it so you answered one of our other questions which was what do you think is the best age to engage when it comes to when it comes to outreach um you know is it is it middle school high school you got ncsy working at that age um what are the advantages or disadvantages of that you're saying 20s and 30s, at college or maybe on college campus, you're partying or you're or you're, right. you're distracted by so much
1: more. How did MJE land on the target that it has? So first of all, all those ages are important because I, I started out with NCSY and I'm sure Robert Broad, you've been involved in both of you in helping to McCarve a high school kid. And it happens and it happens on college campus and it happens 20s, 30s. I just think we got to get to them in enough time before they start choosing their mate. Um, but everybody is different because some people wake up earlier. Some people need to, so Rabbi Buchwald likes to say that people avenge up, they, I'll wait for them to sober up after college and come back to New York and get a job. And then I'll run after them a little. I can't deal with them a college campus. Other people think that the age we're dealing with 23 to 36 is too old. Too much of the, uh, you know, of the brain has been developed. We need to get to them while they're still, you know, developing. It really depends on the person. Everybody is different. I hate turning away people in their 40s and 50s because there are bali chuva i don't know if you've heard of this rabbi akiva but there are people who are 40 years old and up who also become religious but again we're trying to deal with the continuity issue so i'm trying to hit them younger i think i love 20s and 30s i love this cohort because they're a little more serious than on college campus they're well educated and they're a lot of them are aware enough to realize that the dichotomy between their secular education and their Jewish education is ridiculous. Like every, I'm teaching a whole bunch of classes tonight. If I say in my class, is anyone in this room that doesn't have at least a master's degree, at least a master's degree in some area, okay? We've got Harvard, Yale, Princeton sitting in the room with a third grade understanding of God and Judaism. and and I think people in their 20s are starting to, when they start hearing sophisticated Torah ideas, they're like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know. And this is something I heard from my rover or of Rachel, who years ago said it's the greatest that Judaism should appear so infantile and so um, undeveloped and so unsophisticated. This is one of the reasons he was a big advocate Of women education, that when as he he argued that as women become more in the world knowledgeable, get masters, doctorates, and so on and so forth, if their knowledge level is left at a third grade, then what is going to what's going where are our children going to be? What what's their impression of? So I just think there there is there's an element of cure of it has to be concerned with the dignity of Torah and the way Torah is perceived by the majority of our people, and and it's it's a busha of how of unfortunately, you know, the, the level of knowledge and, and the twenties, thirties cohort to me just does it for me on a personal level. That's great. Brody.
2: Yeah. So, so first of all, I I was wondering about the profile of someone that does work like this, the work that you do, the work that I've, I've begun to do following you. I did some research. I happened to see that you're also a drummer and, uh, that's great. I mean, maybe there's something with drums and outreach. I also (laughs) saw that your wife got you the most incredible birthday present one year how I do you know that birth- oh we did- wait, wait. Which i'm talking about liberty, i don't right? know which i mean maybe she got you a lot but i'm talking about the liberty liberty
1: little uh liberty oh, uh lesson the, over there do you know what the other birthday present was? no i don't want i'm, I'm really so jealous Who? so first of all right liberty developed the video game for my 50th that was amazing billy joel's drummer for 30 years i, I was about
0: to say do i embarrass myself by saying <laughs> who's that Oh, you don't know Liberty Devito. That's the I know Billy Joel. I could sing most of the what? songs, but I don't know Liberty um, Devito. Liberty Devito. You're like Liberty. Whole... I. You know what I thought? I thought she bought you like a policy, Liberty, 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 <laughs> Liberty Mutual. <laughs> I was like, wow, she bought you a policy for your birthday. That's, That's really powerful. romantic. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, the uh, the birthday present I I wouldn't say I purchased, but we we got for my wife was an hour shear from Rabbi Goldberg, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Really? Yeah. my Wow. Wife was a huge that I did not. Fan of Rabbi Goldberg. Our, his Torah is all over our home, and uh, it's whatever. So that's what I thought you were okay, referring good. to. But anyway, go on. Yeah, I cut but,
2: you off. So now you can uh, drop the lawsuit, right, against <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. The now the question that I'm just wondering. You know, there's not a lot of guys out there that are coming from, call it the more modern world, that are doing outreach. I remember oh. getting a phone call a couple months ago from a, from a parent saying, you know, my kid is in one of the local yeshivas and. And uh, can you speak to them about one of the one of the, the challenges that they're going through? And they said they said you know, and I said for whatever reason, I said you know, I'm dealing with all the outreach stuff. This is you know, call it an inreach thing. This is you know, you're you're already your kid's plugged in. Why can't you go and speak to the thirty rabbis that are working right now in the schools and in the in the community that are actually they're hired to do that? I'm not. I'm hired to work on the outside. There's only one, only one of me. Why do you think it is that in our world? a world which I think can actually be a lot more successful than some of the other worlds for just a number of reasons, right? Cause we're, we're kind of in the world. We kind of look like the average guy. Maybe we could be more successful, but there's not a lot of guys going into it. No, they're not.
1: It's a, a very astute observation. And when I, when I go, I used to be very involved with AJOP, which is the association for Jewish outreach professionals. Not that everyone in the WYU world wears, you know, one of these surrogies, but I'm like a, an anomaly, you know? Um, there's just very few YU trained, you know, modern Orthodox. We just, ha- we don't, I mean, I have a couple of I- ideas. Um, there is a lack of prestige associated with this kind of work. I think people pay homage to it and respect the people who do it, but don't look at it as a terribly sophisticated kind of thing to be involved in. You know, that's kind of like what you do for a couple of years in NCSY. And then you grow up out of it and you get a stellar or mm-hmm. you become a Rebbe in a Jewish day school, but to like run after young people who are not affiliated, it just seems like a, not a terribly dignified kind of lifestyle. I'll tell you the other more practical reason, you know, we eat what we hunt. Right. And who wants that? There's a lack of stability in the Kirov world. Uh, you know, the jobs don't come with homes and big salaries, um, but I do want to say this, and I know you have a lot of people listening, so. There is some money for young rabbis to make, you know, in outreach. It's not a ton of money, but um, and I think fundraising is a very, very important malacha to learn. Um, And I think it's, you know, um, I just make a quick plug. Also, I'll come back to your question. Do you know how much money is out there? Like philanthropic dollars that we are not tapping into. And I don't just mean orthodoxy, I mean, Jews that is going to museums and hospitals, wonderful causes, but not Jewish institutions because they're not engaged Jewishly. Okay, mm-hmm. if somebody would just, going back to Rabbi Goldberg, your question before, if we were to think, you know, philanthropically a little more strategically, we would realize that we should be more invested because there's tons of money out there that is untapped. But getting back to your question, Robert Broy, I think we need to rebrand Kiruv because the best and the brightest no offense to you or me, okay, I'll put you in the same category with me, the best and the brightest are not going into this. They're becoming Rabbi Ephraim Goldbergs. Rabbi's of wonderful, and that's amazing, and we need them because, you know, we wouldn't have the infrastructure. You wouldn't have your gig, and I wouldn't have people to run after, and everything, you know, my 30 people being, you know, integrated into T-neck and into Great Neck and into Boca, and it's a, we wouldn't have anything then, but we need more, in my opinion, I don't know what the term is. People don't love this term. I go over and I've heard you speak about this. Also, for the lack of a better term, modern, orthodox, centrist types of Rabban going into this work. Because our Torah Umada, our belief in Torah Umada is incredibly attractive. And we're not just doing it for the sake of a Parnassah or to be impressive to other people. But if you follow, let's say, Ravana Luchtenzin Zechatzak saglavracha, you know, about in, in English literature, or Rabbi Tendler's Echatzak in biology, and finding the beauty in Mada, and, and that is informing your relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, religious Zionism. Like, these are attractive aspects to our community that don't exist as much or at all in the Haredi world, and yet they are the ones on the forefront. And, and by the way, God bless them, because they're doing, they are lifting, they, they are doing the heavy lifting, okay. And those you, are my colleagues. On something
0: very important, you know, you've had something important, which you know, the term I would use is mysterious nefesh. You have to do most nefesh, it requires tremendous sacrifice, a willingness to sacrifice. Because the other career paths, you both reference this the other career paths are laid out before you, right? You become a teacher, you become an administrator, you can try to climb, become a head of school, you become an assistant rabbinic intern, an assistant rabbi, you become the rabbi, but you want to go into outreach you you basically have the the burden of every Chabad which is like you said you you eat what you kill like there's no board, there's no budget right. there's no revenue that comes in there's no automatic you know you're you're always in raising money phase yeah. you're always in that right. approach and I think for a lot of people they have the talent of the charisma they would step in if somebody else is doing that work to create the infrastructure and enable them to thrive with their talents but a lot of people are scared and not only they're scared heard from their parents like you need to have a real job you need to have a real salary you need to have real benefits you need to have something real you know what are you going to do well i'm going to go to some undeveloped area of jewish life and beg people for money to pay for my salary so i could turn them on to judaism like that scares a lot of parents it scares a lot of young people And, and they say i mean we're living in a time right now of inflation and cost increases and it's a very very scary time so i wonder if if the community invested funds to create the infrastructure that the talented people could be put into. It doesn't mean they won't have obligations in fundraising. I'm, I'm a rub of a shul and I have enormous fundraising responsibilities. I've taken them on myself or they've been imposed, whatever it is. But not to suggest somebody doesn't have any fundraising, but maybe we need to build it so that they will come.
1: A hundred percent. Look, either we have to change the attitude like Chabad because they're vying for these professions and nobody's throwing any money at them. They're just willing to do it. If we can't affect that kind of attitudinal change, then I guess we have to do what you just suggested, which is create more of an infrastructure that will still require the fundraising, the, excuse me, the outreach professional to fundraise, but it won't be this Herculean feat of like, you know, where it's just, it's keeping people from coming in. And it's, it's a problem because the number one problem I have to this day is not money. It's finding the right people. Now, some of that is a function of money, but finding the right people. Cause you know that if you, you, you get a superstar, it's it. You get a now and you could train, that's it. You could it's train it. and you could develop. And we've been doing that. And I've been blessed with incredible, incredible people. Listen, I want to give a lot of a to my, my parents, my father, he should live and be well, because I, I did go the route. I was, I went to law school. I worked within law. And he continued to support, and it's easy for me to look down at other people and say, why don't you do the same thing? But I had a very supportive family that was willing to do this. And I had also some inroads in the Modern Orthodox community. I was a rabbi KJ, I was a rabbi Ozi. I already had some, some connections. It's not simple for the typical why you to just jump into this. Mm. But if we don't change either attitudinally and give it the prestige that Chabad does, or we don't pump in that cash then we are not going to make the impact we can.
0: I want to give you the counter argument now and then I want to go back because we're already deep into this amazing conversation we have not even yet spoken about um, your own story and your journey and how you got here. But I want to give you the counter argument for a minute with respect and with love. What what would you say to someone who says, you know, we shouldn't build the infrastructure and pump money in to the outreach it's important, but in any business model, you know, there's a cost of acquiring new customers and then there's customer retention. They're right. saying who's already bought in, who we need to keep, because you know you don't just add new customers. You know, shul membership too. You want new members, but how do you keep your members happy that they don't leave? So, in reach versus outreach, we've got a system that we're losing. We're losing way too many. And yeah. you know, I hate the terminologies and labels and being put in a box uh, as much as anyone. I feel a, a member of multiple worlds. Every world is suffering from this. Maybe segments yeah. of the world more than others, but people who are turned off people who are disaffected, people who are walking away. So should we put the same dollar into outreach or put that dollar into inreach? Do we take our greatest talent and say, go 20s and 30s before they get married, convince them Jewish identity matters? Or do we put that talent and say, we've got kids who we've already put half a million, three quarters of a million into through Jewish day school and they're graduating 12th grade, they're going to some secular campus. This is a study that's been done, I won't say by whom, they're afraid to publish it because of how, how frightening the results are what's happening to kids from orthodox home who are going to secular college campuses and walking away from observance in some cases at best and even intermarriage at worst so what are we doing we've got to pump all the money and all the talent into inreach into retention into strengthening our existing observant orthodox community that's what we need to be working on what would you answer them oh god
1: uh, look you can argue either way you can argue and you just made a very powerful argument let's put more money 12 years of day school two years in israel NCSY y colo more 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 a i'm not so sure more money means will make the difference i think we need to change certain things and that's for a longer conversation i think our curriculum in jewish day schools need to be changed they're not in my opinion enough and they're not and i think i know your rebbe I'm moshe weinberger Um, I think a lot more of that approach needs to be, uh, needs to be woven into the very fabric of yeshiva day school education. And until we realize that maybe 20% of our yeshiva day school students are really with the Gemara game, I'm not saying we ditch it, God forbid, it's the staple, but it's not working for so many of them. And I think that's not a money difference. That's not a money difference. Um, it's kind of, you have to make changes. We're, We're still operating with the same kind of curriculum. And I think our shuls need to change in terms of the way we daven. Our our davening and needs to be inspirational. Again, I'll point to Rabbi Moshe Weinberger when I go to Aish Kodesh. Um, It's just like we have to, I model MGE after Aish Kodesh because that's a shul people continue to flock to for all the right reasons. And we have to change our shuls and and we're still not doing it. We talk about it a lot, but we're not doing it yet. So I don't think throwing more money is necessarily uh, the answer, and I will tell you the other answer from a very just purely Torah perspective. We are not given the luxury of answering this question from a purely business perspective. The Torah commands o cheikh, to cheikh amitecha, that we have to go out and try to inspire our brothers and sisters in the ways of Torah Judaism. It didn't say there's no Rashi, there's no qualification there, except if it costs too much money, or now it's going to come at the expense of some from a Yid who we could keep on the path if we threw an extra few dollars. I mean, and I argued this in Jewish action. I wrote an article in response to my Rebbe, our Rebbe, Rabbi Jacob uh, Jay Schachter, who was arguing that we should be putting more money into the Orthodox to keep them Orthodox. And I said, I, I respectfully disagree. We are putting a crazy amount of money. Listen, when I grew up, okay, I didn't grow up as Orthodox, as the typical modern Orthodox kid, okay? And we just have to recognize the world has changed. And many more people are being affected by the outside world through the internet and so on and so forth i don't think those problems are solved with money i think we have to have an attitudinal change in the way we raise our children and day school education and here's the clincher i'll stop talking we have to leverage kirov and this is what rabbi Buchold has taught for many many years we have to leverage kirov to turn on modern orthodox jews blyana have four kids who are very excited about Yiddishkeit, and I give their mother a lot of credit, number one, and number two, the fact that they grew up with 18 to 20 beginners around their Shabbos table every week. If you introduce your kids at a young age to beginners to Judaism who are coming back to Yiddishkeit, and who are choosing to keep Shabbos, choosing to observe kashrut, and and having a hard time giving up shrimp and lobster, and are doing it because they see the value in it, That's a game changer for a Jewish day school kid who's rolling his eyes and waiting to get out, you know, to to do whatever they want to do. And um, I just think if we mainstream Kirov, we get Kirov in every Jewish household. It becomes part of the education of our own children. We will do a lot better and we won't have to make that decision of where do we put the money because we'll put it in Kirov, but it's going to work for our kids.
0: You. um... You were on the path to be a lawyer, as you mentioned. You were a lawyer, and John Lennon changed your life. <laughs> indirectly, indirectly. How's that? How's that? How's that for a segue? How's that for a segue? No, in all seriousness, you know, you have a brother who was a mayor of Englewood. Um, You know, your dad accomplished, and and you should be well representing uh, high profile people. You were on the path of corporate America or or legal America. You know, maybe you would have been representing Johnny Depp or something today. Who knows in the courtroom? So. And, and something changed. What what changed in you? When did that happen? Why did it happen? How did it happen? How did you how did you give your life to uh, to Outreach
1: instead? So it, it actually started with NCSY. Um, Robert Broyd mentioned I was a drummer. I am a drummer. And the only gigs, the band, you want to hear a great name for a band? Tohu Vavohu, Chaos and Disorder. <laughs> that was the first band I was in. Who'd
2: you play with? Who was some of the guys? Oh, with?
1: God. Um, Mo Shapiro, Mark Wexler, Call them sexy waxy. Uh, we had a whole group. And one of the things that they used to do with NCSY bands was keep them as far away from the kids as possible. And I was in that band, and like the band and the kids would never, and I would sit in once in a while in shul. I would they would take out a bunch of kids from shul, like you know, on the tones, bring them into some like shul coat room. It was always in a coat room for some reason, and like it'll be a dozen kids, and somebody would give like a little talk about fila. And I would always listen. I'll be like, that was pretty good. I thought I could do a little better, but I was, the, I was the slimy drummer in the band. I was like the guy you would not, you know, I, not because of me. That's just, that was, that was the culture of the NCSY with the bands. I think they cleaned that up uh, years, years ago. <laughs> okay. So um, there was one guy, Mark Cohen, who I'll never forget. And uh, Mark Cohen was the head of central East NCSY. And, um, he comes over to me in shul and he says, I want you to teach the kids in the room. I said, what do you want me to teach the kids what? He goes, talk to them about tefillah. I said, I didn't prepare anything. He I, I don't care. Just talk to them about tefillah, go in the courtroom. And then I was like, okay. I went with like a dozen kids into a room. <laughs> and we talked about what it means to daven, to pray. I was in Wallyu at the time, I was in college. And then the next time he put me up in front of a shul, we were in Columbus, Ohio. And he just literally gave me five minutes. He said, talk, I want you to say something. And he just kept sticking me up there. And not only when I was behind the drum set, but, and I started to feel like this is resonating with me. And when I was in Smich and Wayu, which I only really went to, to learn because my Rebbe, uh, live and well Um I, I loved Raparnas and I was in a she'er, and I didn't want to leave the she'er. YU didn't let you just float around. So. I had to I did the Chaver program to stay in the shear of another year. And then the only thing left was Smicha. I had no interest in being a rabbi. I was already in law school. I was also enrolled in a master's degree in Colombian in International Affairs. I had all I was gonna save Soviet Jews. I was gonna go into my father's firm, immigration, international law. I worked for Senator Moynihan, Congressman Gary Ackerman, I had a whole thing going. But then <laughs> I started a beginner service, just like you run, Robert Royd. A beginner service in the Queens Drew Center to just be, I would say, my uh, internship requirement for YU. I wasn't going to do it, but they said, you got this far in Smicha, just do it. And I started a beginner's minion. And I remember I plastered 108th Street, Yellowstone Boulevard, Queens Boulevard in my neighborhood with flyers. I called this guy, Effie Buchwald, on the phone. This is 1991. (laughs) Okay. And I said, I'm going to start a beginner's meeting. I have no idea who's going to come. Eight Jews showed up. I can tell you all their names. Eight Jews showed up and I just got bitten. And everything I was doing in the law, international affairs, I finished my law degree. I worked for a couple of firms. It was just, it, it was fine, but this was like amazing. This was like, I, I just got bit and I just wanted to do it more and more. And uh, I just figure the world, the Jewish world could probably do without one more Jewish attorney, but maybe if we could grab hold to, you know, and I wanna give credit to my Rebbe, um, Rabbi Joseph Grimblatt, who was the rabbi of my shul, of Levracha. who was a big Talmud Chacham and a big Baal Machshava. He had a big influence on me and he mentored me for those few years. And then I got a call from out of the blue, from this Rabbi Shachter, who called and asked if I would teach a class at the Jewish center. This is now 1995 uh, for non-Jewish center members. And um, uh, and he would pay me to teach like a basic Judaism class at the Jewish center. Um, I met my wife, by the way, in that class. Uh, I did not date her while she was in the class. I want to make that clear for the record. Um, yeah, <laughs> a great story <laughs> if you did it's okay it wasn't it's not like it was high school <laughs> um you know I asked my Rebbe at the one of my Rebbe at the time I was like what do you think he's like that's a little beneath industry standard It's funny <laughs> what how many classes is a semester I said it's eight classes we're ready three or four He goes, so wait for the semester over and then ask her out she was already becoming observant so I waited and like a schnook for the last class I advertise I'm doing another semester, which she, of course, signed up for. (laughs) Started dating my best friend and that was another eight weeks. I couldn't do anything. Anyway, that's all the story. But that's my trajectory. Basically, I got bit and I would say to anyone um, who really enjoys presenting Judaism and engaging with Jews who are smart, motivated, just not terribly learned or knowledgeable, there's something that we those of us from a little more of a learned, knowledgeable background, we can gain so much by being engaged with this, literally majority of our people that are disconnected. Go ahead, everybody.
2: Yeah. I'm just listening to this. This is great. I, saw, I saw Every- many more
1: gestures. First Lennon. of all, where does John Lennon fit in? Oh God. So I'm an obsessive Beatles fan. So my dad represented John for five years. I met him on my ninth birthday in wow. court he wow. uh, wished me a happy birthday and told me that i could have my father back now because my dad was basically focused on that case for almost five years wow um, do you ever
2: get to play with him you ever get to sit in on the, on the no, drums I, yeah. I was a
1: i was a kid but oh. um i'm obsessed with all of his music I had a great great deal you know i actually gave a drush on this past russia about imagine which if you know the lyrics for imagine aren't exactly along the lines with our <laughs> outlook on judaism um i think he was a highly misunderstood personality but a very very gifted artist who cared deeply about society and the way things were going and tried to use you know his his popularity to shift things in a way that he thought was appropriate not all of which we might agree with but i think generally speaking a very very positive way uh, you know, minus the drug, sex, and rock and roll.
0: Well, not the rock and roll. Um, I'm listening <laughs> to our whole conversation, and and you know, fantastic insight, and and I'm getting a lot. I'm sure our listeners are too. And I'm really curious the feedback for one particular listener. There is a woman who's a member of the Greater Jewish community. She's not observant. She's not Orthodox, but she's a big you know Rabbi Brody fan, Rabbi Moskowitz fan. So she listens to Behind the Bema, and often we get an email, and we, we've even met with her, and she gave us some feedback because she's tried to have us pivot to direct and to remember that the whole world is not orthodox or observant, doesn't know our lingo and so on. I think we've been I think we've been fairly careful with that in this conversation to make it accessible and available to anyone to listen to. But I'm wondering when she hears our conversation mm-hmm. about outreach, mm-hmm. outreach, 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 we've got to turn on Jews, we've got to inspire Jews, we've got to educate Jews, we've got to bring Jews to where we are. I know the Lubavitch Rebbe, for example, was opposed to calling it Kirov because Kirov means I've arrived and let me bring you closer to where I am. You're far away. I'm where you're meant to be. Let me bring you close. He was opposed to that. So I'm just wondering, will she listen to this and say, wow, this is amazing. Three rabbis talking about the future of the Jewish people, caring, connecting, inspiring, lifting, or will she say, you know, they think they've arrived. They have the only brand that everyone has to be like them transform, convert, observe, practice. You know, is it, I don't mean you, Rabbi Wilds, I'm talking to myself, is it condescending or insulting to the unaffiliated, non-observant who hears? Or do they say, wow, this is a whole conversation about caring about me, inviting me, remembering I'm not invisible and finding me. So how do you strike that balance in the outreach world between I love you and I care about you and I'm sharing something special I value with you versus, you know, I've arrived, I'm observant, I'm lucky I was born into it, you poor intellectual peasant who don't know anything let me reach out you know like I'm, I'm curious your feedback I, I hate people in the outreach world when they talk about how many balachuvas they made not right. one person in particular who talks about that but uh, and there's a lot of things I don't like about that person but but there are people who talk about I made bali I made millions I made hundreds of thousands I made thousands of bali that language I made a balchuva. You would never
1: use that language. I would would never never use language. First of all, it's not true. It's anybody who's really well acquainted with outreach in Kirov knows that we are at best facilitators. People have to make a choice. We can't do that for them. Okay, and I also going back to your uh, question before, why are there not enough motivated, uh, talented, modern Orthodox rabbis? I think Rabbi Goldberg, one of the reasons people shy away from Kirov is because of that perception. It Hmm. smacks of a certain chauvinistic, we're here and you're over there, okay? We have to be able to articulate that we are doing outreach for two reasons. Love Torah, we believe in Torah, that's one reason, and we love you. No different than going to a movie that you love, that you think is incredible, and then you go home and you say nothing to your wife about the amazing movie you just saw, that either you didn't like the film or you don't care terribly about your wife. If you love the film and you love your wife, you're going to try to marry the two together. Mm-hmm. That is it. And, and, and I think at the end of the day, people are excited about that. They're not put off by that. They are put off, as you very aptly put it, by any kind of sense of I'm here and you're here. This condescension of like, I have absolute monopoly on truth. And all you have to do is plug in what I'm saying and you'll be as happy, as fulfilled and as connected to God as I am. We're all on a journey, and I don't just say that. I know that sounds, I really believe we're on a journey, and I and I also believe that engaging with people that are less connected is part of our Avodah Hashem, not only because of of the obligation to reach out, but also because of the people we meet challenge us in a way that other Orthodox Jews do not. Right. We need them to be the best Jewish selves ourselves. And I think if we can communicate that, um, because I'm, I am a little concerned with the direction the modern the the more modern part of the modern orthodox community is very put off by the they don't like to use the word kirov it's engagement and i'm like why kirov just means getting closer we're trying to help other people get closer to you just like you and i are trying to get closer to you we have the benefit of a day school or whatever kind of jewish education so we can share things other people don't know that's all it is it's not implying i'm better but it is it is saying something about this information about this thing called the torah but when was the last time we were shy about saying how awesome torah was
0: so i, you know, I think you we, know the story yeah. you probably used the story about the young man who the gear rebbe ran into in yerushalayim and he said where are you learning so he named whatever yeshiva was about shuva yeshiva so he told him the name of the yeshiva he said but i'm not about you right? and
2: the right. Rebbe
0: looked at him and said Farvos nisht, and why not why aren't you about us yeah
2: so, yeah so exactly
0: <laughs> so so that's you know kirov we're trying to do kirov on ourselves why should we apologize for for sharing it more broadly than that too we can't allow this conversation to go by without mentioning my dear friend ezra Cohen, rabbi ezra Cohen, one of your great assets manhattan jewish experience mje
1: so i remember um, he ran a program he's, he's an amazing example of talent who devoted he's been with us for 20 years now
0: i'm sorry go ahead I'm, 20 years no 20 he ahead. is he is a talent he is great and a good friend i remember him sharing with me a great program that that he led that you led um mje in manhattan fiddler on the roof on the roof that you showed Fiddler on the roof (laughs) on the roof so tell tell our listeners let's let's try to close out what are some of the creative programs how do you engage 20 and 30 professionals they could be at a bar at a club um they could be you know professional networking they could be at home with Direct TV what kind of programs do you run what are some of the
1: creative I've seen some of your great videos video the Rocky video yeah the videos
2: that was the greatest
1: i mean i i I mean i love that you love my rocky video because i take a lot of pride in that
2: no but every scene was perfect like i know rocky i know like when you (laughs) when you wiped your mouth with the egg i know that scene
1: i um by the way the egg kept gelling up in the shell (laughs) when i was trying to fake drink it because i would never it was orange juice with a little water uh um you know what number one powerful experience and the whole outreach world realizes years ago and is bringing Jews to Israel. Number one, Israel. There's just something, anything you do in the diaspora, I hate to say it, anything you do in the diaspora smacks a little of talking about Judaism as opposed to feeling it itself. Um, so Israel is just high, you know, ranks very, very high. I think music, um, I think also marrying whatever Torah with what's contemporary. My son is very into meditation and um, music, and he does these musical meditations. It's really catching on now. A lot of young people are getting into and already into meditation. If we can demonstrate how Judaism, and through sila has has is into this, and this is a path into Torah, into Yiddishkeit, Shabbos has never been easier to sell. Hmm. In 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 the 25 years I've been doing Kira of outreach, whatever you want to call it, Shabbos, this detox to put the phone down you know years ago i sounded like old-fashioned now i'm like sounding progressive because everybody's looking to sort of out from the craziness of technology um i'm not giving you the coolest craziest things i mean I, i would say israel shabbos dinners classes social events ski retreat we've been doing ski retreats for a long time i love them because you marry skiing with judaism and if you could take like the jacket off and just like chill out on the slopes and literally teach a class on a, on a ski slope or at a lodge around a fire, it just brings everything down. It just, we, our guard is, is down. Their guard is down. We're looking at each other. We're talking, we're connecting Shabbos meals. I want to say it again before we finish here, as many of your Balabatim, Rabbi Goldberg, Rabbi Broyd, that we can inspire to invite to a Shabbos meal, because the fanciest, most sophisticated and expensive videos and programs will never compete with the beauty of a family sitting down to have a Shabbos meal. And that was Rabbi Noach Weinberg's Zechron of you mentioned it before, Awake the Sleeping Giant. Who's the Sleeping Giant? It's not the cure of professionals, it's not the rabbis. It's the typical Joe Jew, keeping Shabbos, living a life of Torah and mitzvot. How can we bring everyone into this? That's how we're gonna affect the masses.
0: Rabbi Mark Wilds, Founder, Director, MJE. You are 100% right. There are enough Jewish lawyers out there, but what would the world look like? In case any of our listeners wonder, is Rabbi Wilds really in Manhattan? Does he really live in Manhattan? Does he work in Manhattan? Are we faking (laughs) it? sound effects. There were sirens the entire (laughs) interview. So he is definitely in Manhattan. He's not in some studio, it's not a fake background. He is not only in Manhattan, he is transforming Manhattan. Rabbi Wilds, thank you for giving your time. It's my honor, and pleasure, and I thank I you for being a something. pioneer. Thank you for being out front, really being Moser Nefesh for this, because you know from our community, our chevra, you are a pioneer in doing this. You've paved the way. You're doing it with tremendous success. You've hired lots of people and got them started on their career in this way. So you you've made a huge, huge difference, and uh, Jewish people are much richer for it. Thank you,
2: and we will keep copying you. Research
0: well, I,
1: I I hope other shuls will copy you, because you said at the beginning, how many shuls have an outreach director on staff? Not a lot. It takes a real commitment. You've made that commitment, Rabbi Goldberg, and you've had a colleague for many years who's awesomely talented. And you should a both say, <laughs> Amen. Thank
0: amen. Thank you so much.